Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. I would like to welcome you to From the Editor's Desk, a podcast where myself and Kyle Rasur, Editor-in-Chief at Compliance Week, unpack some of the top stories which have or will appear in Compliance Week each month. We look at the top compliance stories, talk some sports, and generally try to solve the world's problems. In this episode, Compliance Week Editor-in-Chief Kyle Basur returns to talk about some of the articles that appeared in Compliance Week in July, some of the things that Kyle and his team are looking at for articles in August, upcoming Compliance Week seminars, events, and webinars, as well as a deep dive into David Ortiz, Big Poppy, and what he means for Boston and the Boston Red Sox. From the Editor's Desk is a production of the Compliance Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox back again with Kyle Ratsur, Editor-in-Chief at Compliance Week for another edition of From the Editor's Desk. This is the podcast where we unpack some of the top stories which have appeared in Compliance Week, some which will appear in Compliance Week, talk about some of the upcoming events Compliance Week is a part of, and talk sports where, we, of course, we try to save the world. So I'm Tom Fox, your co-host. And I'm Kyle Brasser, like Tom mentioned, I'm the Editor-in-Chief at Compliance Week. And I'm once again thrilled to join Tom to bring you some of the top stories that Compliance Week is following, featured writers from Compliance Week, and also, as Tom mentioned, we'll talk some sports. Kyle, what were some of the stories that you were particularly proud of or struck your readership in July? Yeah, Tom, there was a few things. I think for starters, we had a little bit of carryover from late June where the SEC announced its fine against EY for exam cheating. And I think this is something that why being an accounting and audit firm is a little bit more accounting and audit, but we're starting to see this crackdown from regulators far and wide regarding exam cheating. I know FINRA has been doing the same regarding its exams. And the main reason is that most of these exams that are being cheated on are ethics exams. The irony of that and the regulators are starting to get frustrated with these gatekeeper positions, not taking very seriously the ethics implications of their roles. I thought that really showed in the fine against EY. It was $100 million, which is twice as much KPMG was fined in in 2019 over their exam cheating scandal, which also involved some pretty damning findings regarding their sort of collusion with the PCAOB, or not collusion with the PCAOB, but collusion to steal records from the PCAOB. It's very apparent that the regulator is really cracking down on this and regulators in full are cracking down on this. So that was in terms of our site, there was a lot of attention paid to that. And then one of the other things that I thought was really interesting this last month, especially for chief compliance officers, was seeing SEC Commissioner Hester Peirce weigh a CCO liability framework in an enforcement action that the SEC brought. There was no obligation for Commissioner Peirce to do this. So I think it's just such a great thing that she took it upon herself to say, okay, let's look at this case and let's use the New York City Bar's proposed CCO liability framework, and let's explain why we think it meets the threshold to bring an enforcement action. And now the results of that, some have disagreed with, and some would argue that maybe it, it didn't meet the thresholds. But it, for as an observer, it's just great to see that progress. So we're at the point where an SEC commissioner has acknowledged the existence of the CCO liability framework, has acknowledged that CCO liability is an extreme concern, and it is certainly working to keep the conversation going. And we, our writer, Aaron Nicodemus, wrote a column last week regarding compliance officers' concerns of liability and how they want to be partners with these regulatory agencies and not targets. I think that can push toward that direction 
is always really good for the compliance community and, and is certainly going to be a topic of interest, especially this year, I think liability concerns have really come to the fore with some of the stuff we've been seeing from some of these regulators who have been a little bit more apt to bring cases against two compliance officers or with the Department of Justice in its new certification program, putting the spotlight on these individuals. There's been a, definitely a heightened conversation around liability. And what are some of the things that you've got in the work for August, Kyle? Yeah, Tom, we're working on a few things right now. For us, July is always a slow month. We move at the speed of the regulators and whatnot, and they all move quite slow <laughs> during vacation season. We're coming off July. And we're looking toward really hitting the ground running here in August. We're in the process of forming our next special report for our fall print magazine, which should be coming out in around September. And we think one of the things we want to explore in this magazine, and again, we're in the formulative stages at this point, is revisiting compliance technology and doing so from the perspective of how regulators are confronting these new technologies and that are being utilized by the profession. And I think one example of this that really hit the fore just a couple of weeks ago was you had Bank of America disclosing that they are expecting to pay 200 million for the use of unauthorized messaging apps by their bankers. And this is something where we saw last year, JP Morgan got fined 200 million by the SEC and CFTC for the same. So we're having this sort of trend emerging, an enforcement trend on this area where a lot of banks are have this. Their bankers are communicating through WhatsApp or whatever it may be, and maybe they're not doing so in a way that complies with the banking regulations. And the banks are the ones that are paying for that. We're going to be looking at these sort of new technology things that were not really a thing five or 10 years ago and how some of the, the regulators are cracking down on some of these things. So I think some of it's going to be really timely and be able to address some of these matters that we're seeing come to the fore right now. So this would not be a focus on technology assisting banks, financial institutions, or public companies to bring compliance forward, but really the new technology which is developed, which has raised compliance challenges for banks, financial institutions, or public companies? Yeah, I think that there's probably going to be some opportunity to talk a little bit about some of those compliance technologies that are being utilized just solely for a beneficial landscape. But I think for us, one of the things we really want to explore is how regulators are confronting new technologies. Because I think in the last year, we've seen in the European Union, they're putting forward their AI Act. We've seen everything that's going on, the conversation around cryptocurrency and the SEC obviously making some waves last week with its case that it brought against, the insider trading case it brought against the former Coinbase manager and how they listed it within that enforcement that nine of these Coinbase offerings were securities and basis well they're not securities to us so it's there's a lot of muddy waters around some of these topics and that's what we want, sort of want to explore is to say all right here's what the regulators are saying here's what the businesses are saying and here's where where compliance sort of needs to be and they in between these things because if you're on the wrong side of it the way some of these regulators are reacting pretty aggressively the fines aren't small and i think again the bank of america case 200 million dollars it catches the eye. Let me stay with Coinbase for a minute because I wanted to ask you, I really sensed a tsunami from that SEC filing, and I didn't fully appreciate the difference between a DOJ who can sue for wire fraud and bring a criminal action for wire fraud as opposed to the SEC who does not have a wire fraud statute. They only have jurisdiction if the item, I'm going to use that word in quotes, is a security. And so they have claimed that the tokens were securities. And just reading the commentary, it seemed one in the crypto world was talking about this. Did you get the sense from where you guys are sitting? 
Oh yeah, we don't try to only address cryptocurrency when it really comes to the compliance for it because it's such a wide-ranging topic. And if we covered cryptocurrency closely, it's the only thing we'd cover. There's always so much to write about it. But for us, a question or the real thing that comes back to is, and this was something really caught my eye in seeing one of the new CFTC commissioners put out a statement and accuse the SEC of regulation by enforcement. That's what the main conversation that we're having on our end. And the thing that we're looking to explore further is that concept of regulation by enforcement. And we've seen it thrown around a lot with the way the SEC is approaching cryptocurrency. That Obviously, that, that Ripple case that's being tried out in the courts right now, there's so many ramifications to that case because if it, the court rules with the SEC, it's really going to set a whole bar in, in terms of the way that the industry is approached. That, I think, is the visceral reaction that's being felt by the cryptocurrency community. That's the problem that they have is they feel like they can't do anything until somebody gets in trouble and then they realize where the line is drawn. So yeah, it's definitely a lot of frustration among the folks in that industry. But I think there's also just a lot of frustration among folks from other industries just trying to figure out what's going on. And you know, even frustration, it's odd to see frustration among the CFTC, a sister agency to the SEC. There's a lot of people at the CFTC that feel they should be the ones making these calls and that these crypto offerings should be commodities. So that's where I think the controversy really stems from. And we're actually planning to take an expanded look at that and some of this discussion about some of these complaints that have gone on around that. So I have an internal debate with myself all the time and with a lot of other people of whether cryptocurrency is a security. I usually come down on the side that it is a security if you're not utilizing it as some type of currency, meaning if you're buying it for investment purposes. Are you guys having those internal discussions at Compliance Week as well? For the most part, I don't think it's our place to make that call. For us, we're paying close attention to what the regulators are saying and really trying to come down on it. I would say all of us are not the most crypto savvy folks. We're certainly not scoring big on crypto trades and splurging all of our earnings or whatnot. But for us, we're just trying to keep a pulse on what's going on and how the regulators are approaching it because that's what our audience wants to know. And especially our members who are coming from the banking industry and stuff, there's a lot of ramifications there for what cryptocurrencies are determined to be. And some of the way these other regulators, we talk a lot about the SEC and their involvement there, but the Treasury is making some moves as well regarding cryptocurrency. And they've thrown out the idea of the US government backed digital offerings that could really throw things for a loop. We don't have a specific determination either way, but uh, it's just a matter of keeping tabs on things. Let me turn now to any upcoming events, uh, conferences, particular webinars that uh, have gotten a lot of attention or you're really putting some time towards. I know there's an upcoming ESG event. Any other upcoming events you'd like to highlight for us, Kyle? Yeah, we are going to have a few before the year ends. Thank you for asking, Tom. So the ESG event that's coming up in September so that was an event that we ran for the first time last year. It was a real big hit. And uh, with obviously the events of this year and the SEC moving forward with the climate-related disclosure rule, it's really front and center. And we thought that there was certainly more than enough to talk about to warrant another conference. So that's going to be a virtual event. We'll also have our annual European conference. That's going to be live in Edinburgh in October. So exciting for us to be able to return in person there and be able to put on an event that's very similar to our national conference, but with an international. So we're going to be talking a lot about some of the regulations that are front of mind in Europe and the European Union. And then late in the year in December, we're going to have our second third-party risk conference. So we have our first one in Chicago in June. This December 1 will be held virtual, which I was really hoping they would put it somewhere warm, seeing it's going to be in December in Boston, but we're going to be holding this one virtual and, and be able to 
cover a lot of the same ground we covered in June and expand on it a little bit more. When I attended the conference in Chicago in June, and a lot of the conversation was on sanctions against Russia and the implications that has for outsourced business and third parties. And I think it's going to be just as timely to revisit it in December and where things stand, where things are going. There's always a lot to talk about. There's a lot to talk about with ESG and third party risk and some of these crackdowns on really the social elements. It was a really riveting session at that June conference about modern slavery and supply chains. There's a lot to be said for all that stuff, enough to warrant a full other conference dedicated solely to TPRM. We'll have those couple of events over before the year ends. And we also, in the months ahead before the end of the year, we'll be excited to once again be doing our Inside the Mind of the CCO survey. That's the anchor of our winter print magazine. So that one should be going live in the fall and always a real good opportunity for us to just hear from the individuals that are in the industry. What's the, what's the things that they're struggling with? What's keeping them up at night? Where, what areas do they see requiring the most of their time and attention? For us, that's a real highlight every single year because it shapes our coverage, not only for that print magazine, but for the year ahead to know exactly what these compliance officers are confronting. A few more things before the end of the year. Kyle, in addition, uh, in addition to work, doing this podcast with you, I'm a consumer of Compliance Week. And one of the issues I look forward to the most is exactly the one you just detailed inside the mind of the CCO. I find it incredibly informative, but it also seems to me to be incredibly popular because it really gives CCOs a sense of what their colleagues are thinking about. Do you find that to be true as well? I do, yeah. For us, this is going to be our fourth year doing it. And we've so we've we've always had the survey evolve to the discussion of that year. On the second year that we did it, it was really all about the pandemic in 2020. And then last year, we focused it on ESG, DEI, and cybersecurity, which were a few areas that there was an expectation increased regulation would come down in. And that's the way this year has played out. Obviously, we have the SEC's climate disclosure rule. We have the SEC's rule regarding cybersecurity breach disclosures and the reporting deadlines there. It's always a way for us to take a look at compliance within that year and have practitioners really tell us how they were confronting the major challenges of that year. So, yeah, we, we look forward to it a lot. I think our audience looks forward to it a lot. There are a lot of the questions that we ask on a year-to-year basis in order to have that year-over-year benchmarking. It's definitely a highlight for us, a survey that we're always good to get a lot of interactivity on. And we think it partners great with our end-of-the-year issue, really looking back at what compliance looked like in 2022 and looking ahead to what it'll look like in 2023. Kyle, it sounds like you have some great stuff planned, not only for August, but the rest of the year. So I'm very excited for all of these, but I'm also excited to get to our sports segment. The This past weekend was the induction, annual induction of new Hall of Fame members in Cooperstown. And Big Pappy was introduced as a new member of the Hall of Fame. And I really, there's so much you could say about him. The first pure designated hitter, I think, to make it into the Hall of Fame. One of the true faces of the Boston Red Sox, I think for 16 years, maybe a little bit less, maybe two. 14 years, one of the faces of Major League continuing today. But I really wanted to, and of course, if you want to talk about the stats, I'm happy to, I'm a stat guy, so I can geek out with you on that. But I really wanted to ask you, what did he mean or does he mean for the Boston Red Sox or perhaps Red Sox Nation? But what does he mean to the city of Boston? Yeah, Tom, for the purposes of our audience, I know we've mentioned this on a couple of podcasts before. So I worked for ESPN for a handful of years, and I actually was at ESPN Boston specifically from 2013 to 2015 covering the Red Sox. So my first year covering the Sox was the year that they won the World Series and David Ortiz was the World Series MVP. I really sort of hit the ground of my sports career 
having to consistently interview and interact with this very larger than life personality and real person in the city of Boston. I mean, I grew up in Massachusetts and I grew up a Red Sox fan. And so I knew very full well and where David Ortiz is standing in the community and, and how he's idolized by Red Sox fans. And I think it, it really comes through in the way that the city reveres him. I think his number was retired immediately the year after he retired, which is very much against the way the Red Sox do number retirements. They renamed the nearby bridge after him. They don't, they don't hesitate in any way to, to honor David Ortiz because they know what he means to the Boston community. And I mean, if you go to any Red Sox game now, you're still going to see plenty of 34 jerseys in this. And I think a lot of it was because not only was he a great player on the field, in Boston, you got to be a good, you got to perform on the field. That's always the main thing you have to do. But he had such a great personality and a warm, inviting personality. And that's always a thing that really resonates in this city is when these players show their true selves or, or really are willing to put themselves out. We saw it a lot with that 2004 Red Sox team, which was full of a bunch of idiots, as they called themselves, and were very kind of boisterous crowd. And over the years with all the other sports teams around here, the, the Rob Gronkowskis and the Kevin Garnetts, all these oversized personalities always really stand out in Boston are always really welcomed by the fans. They, I think in Boston, there's a big desire to feel like you're part of it. And you really do feel like you're part of it when the person is has that big personality and invites you in. And Ortiz was one of the best at that you'll ever really find. He, as he, I think he was very genuine in his appreciation for the city. The Red Sox organization did as much for him for his career as he did for the team on the field. And I think that came through in his speech was sure to thank the Red Sox for everything they did for his career. And the city of Boston, we have nothing but love and respect for Ortiz. And it's it's one of those things where he'll be a legend around here for the rest of his lifetime. There's no doubt about it. And I'm sure he'll make his cameos at Fenway and everything like that. And uh, every time, he'll always be welcome back with the arms wide open, that's for sure. So I, had, I knew this, but I guess con- forgotten it, but he actually drafted was drafted by and started with the Minnesota Twins. Yes. And... Yeah. For reasons completely unknown to me, they let him go to Boston. But the thing I remember was, I think, from the seasons of 03 and 04, to me, were two of the greatest seasons of baseball, both during the season and in the playoffs. Obviously, in 03, it was the Yankees. In 04, it was the Red Sox. But to me, it's just one season, just a continuation almost. And they were on, it seemed, every Sunday night on ESPN. So I got to watch all of those games. And a fight could break out at any time. They hated each other. And and they played with a passion that you don't often see for that sustained period of time. And Ortiz was, and you called them a gang of idiots. I thought it was one of the greatest gangs of, or teams of characters I had seen since the Big Red Machine in Cincinnati. Everybody, it seemed, had their own TV show, even Jason Veritek had a, had a TV show, but those, and that's where Ortiz started, but your remarks about covering him in 2013, to me, that was the year that was just unbelievable. I think he hit better that year than any other year, and, and he was in his mid to late 30s by then, and here he was literally the World Series MVP, but he's continued that, and having had a team that's gone to four World Series, I get to watch David Ortiz comment on Fox television. And his commentary is great because it's just him. He's not doing stats. He's not doing deep analytics. He's doing David Ortiz. And he speaks from the heart and he talks with the heart of a hitter. And I find that so refreshing 
And so just for a little bit of time, you get a glimpse of what he gave you, the city of Boston and Red Sox Nation for all those years. And he's just a great asset to the game. He's been one of the most memorable characters in my lifetime. And I was so thrilled he was honored with a first ballot Hall of Fame going forward. So he's, in my mind, and then I have to include the uh, marathon bombing. I felt like he spoke for all of us. And I know you guys thought he spoke for you all. But I thought he spoke for all of us. I'll never forget him for that leaped out few words that were on television. We got a few more minutes left, and I wanted to completely take it a little bit, not a little bit, a very different direction. So we have a, a new golf league set up backed by the Saudi Arabian Sovereign Wealth Fund called LIV or LIV, and they are trying to set up a tour to compete with the PGA. So I've followed golf intermittently. I followed it more when I used to play, but I haven't played in a long time. Should we even care about this? Is this just millionaires tussling with other millionaires, or does it really mean something? I think it's funny, Tom, when you and I were talking about preparing for this podcast, I had made the joke that it's an antitrust story. There is that element of this, too, of the golf league. One of the things I think is it's There's a lot of pomp and circumstance around it. Obviously, when you have huge names leaving one tour for another, it just gets so much attention. But then, if I'm not mistaken, the viewership numbers on LIV are not even remotely threatening. So that's where... uh, That's where their money's going to come from in the long term. They can throw their money at these players all they want, but if nobody's watching, it's not a sustainable product. And therefore, what's the reason to really make a big to-do about it if nobody's watching and nobody really cares? At the end of the day... That's where all the revenue comes from, is that view. So until LIV can get those numbers up to a, a respectable place, I think that they're going to struggle to stay within the story. But it's a 24-hour news cycle. Right now, the story is all these big names that are joining the tour and these big comments that are coming down from the head honchos in each league. But once that discussion point dries up, at the end of the day, who's going to be watching LIV? And if the answer is not millions of people, then... It's only so long that they're going to be able to pay these golfers more than PGA, and it's really going to come back to it. But I do think the element of discussion that really needs to be paid attention here is, is the sort of, jokingly, the, the antitrust angle. But the idea that a, a league can just claim a sports to be uh, claim a sport to be its own, I think, is something that I'm glad to be see it being addressed and see it coming to play here. The PGA, they don't own golf; they're maybe the one predominant league. You don't really have any necessary competition, but. It doesn't mean that they are the arbiters of everything on all things golf. And I say this as somebody who has no interest in golf really whatsoever. I don't have the patience for it, and it is not my sport of choice. But as a sports fan in general, I always think there's a lot of of audacity on the parts of some of these leagues to think that they are the sport and they transcend it. And I don't think that's the case at all. So it's nice to see that stuff come to a head. You hope that if LIV isn't a long-term thing, it doesn't hold out that it at the very least helps to teach the PGA some lessons in terms of appreciating its players, appreciating its fans, and appreciating the the luck that it's had over these years. So the good place that it's been in, because all it takes is an upstart to come through and promise better things to really shake things up. And we'll see what LIV's face holds. At the end of the day, there's I think there's a lot of good that's going to come from it, no matter what goes down, even if the PGA just smartens up in a couple ways and confront some of the things it needed to confront. Maybe we can visit this this down the road a little bit, Kyle. So, oh, yeah. Kyle, unfortunately, we're near the end of our time, but I thank everyone for listening and joining us. I'm Tom Fox. And I'm Kyle Brasser. Thanks, Tom. Appreciate it. 
this is Tom Fox again. Thank you for listening to From the Editor's Desk. I'm excited to announce a new podcast series for the summer of 2022. I've revamped Trekking Through Compliance for New Compliance and Leadership's Lessons Learned. It premieres on June 1 and runs for 80 consecutive days. So if you're interested in the intersection of Star Trek and Compliance, this is the podcast for you, Trekking Through Compliance from the Compliance Podcast Network. I hope you will join Kyle and I again next month where we take a look at some of the stories that appeared in Compliance Week and will appear in the following month.